Well, I know she gets embarrassed when I say it, so I will not tell you how much I appreciate our pianist helping us worship. Amen. Um, one reason we were late coming out is we were just back there listening. Yeah. So. Now you've Are you embarrassed yet, sister? <laughs> yeah. I just really appreciate how you, with your godly, humble attitude, lead us in worship, in, in the musical part of it. You set the tone, and one thing I really appreciate is that it's not a performance. It's, it's an act of service to our Lord, so thank you. The only other announcement I have, hopefully will not embarrass anybody, but we have a fellowship lunch today, a picnic lunch at White Oak Park, just down the street, and I hope you can join us around some picnic food. Well, good morning. Our uh, reading in the life of Christ is found in Mark chapter 6. And we'll begin in verse 1 of Mark chapter 6. It says, He went away from there and came to his hometown, and his disciples followed him. And on the Sabbath he began to teach in the synagogue, and many who heard him were astonished, saying, Where did this man get these things? What is the wisdom given to him? How are such mighty works done by his hands? Is not this the carpenter, the son of Mary? and brother of James, James and Joseph and Judas and Simon? And are not his sisters here with us? And they took offense at him. And Jesus said to them, A prophet is not without honor except in his hometown and among his relatives and in his own household. And he could do no mighty work there except that he laid his hands on a few sick people and healed them. And he marveled because of their unbelief. And he went out about he and he went about among the villages teaching. And he called the twelve and began to send them out two by two and gave them authority over the unclean spirits. He charged them to take nothing for their journey except a staff, no bread, no bag, no money in their belts, but to wear sandals and not put on two tunics. And he said to them, Whenever you enter a house, stay there until you depart from there. And if any place will not receive you, and they will not listen to you. When you leave, shake off the dust that is on your feet as a testimony against them. So they went out and proclaimed that people should repent, and they cast out many demons and anointed with oil many who were sick and healed them. Amen. Thank you, Blake, for the reading of the gospel this morning. That question in there about where did he get these things and, and how did this come about? We'll talk about that in a bit in our sermon this morning. And you'll see it's uniquely related to the power of the Holy Spirit. And we'll discuss that in just a bit. Notice also the, the call and the command to the twelve that he chose... They were to go out and proclaim repentance and call people to faith. If they didn't trust, if they didn't believe, 
It wasn't because they didn't give an eloquent and enough presentation. It really demonstrates the judgment that these people take on themselves for not hearing and heeding God's word. It's really important to hear and heed God's word any time in which it's proclaimed. It can be a saving grace, or it can bring about judgment for those who will not hear. Let's go to the Lord in prayer and pray that our eyes will be enlightened to be able to hear the words of Christ today and to respond to him in the way he would speak to us this day. I'll give you a moment to prepare your own heart to worship Christ, and then I'll pray for us corporately. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, we've gathered together here to worship your holy name. We're thankful that we have a desire to indeed do that. I pray, Father, that our understanding of Jesus Christ, our Lord, would be increased this day. Increased such a way that our satisfaction in him would be increased. I pray, Father, that we will truly hear and heed your word. May we not be like those who didn't listen, instead rejected, who didn't heed your word. I pray, Father, that you would truly give us ears to hear, eyes to see, hearts to respond in faith and trust in you. I pray that you comfort those that are distracted by many things, perhaps, that are going on in their life, even this day, into which the circumstances of this world might be a circumstance in which the devil would pluck away the good seed of the word. I pray, Father, that you will, by the power of the Holy Spirit, allow them to be comforted by your truth to gain great confidence in in you in whatever circumstance they might find themselves in. Knowing that truly you work all things together for ultimately your glory, but it redounds to our good as well. So may, may we enjoy that blessing to which you have granted to us. You have blessed us with all good and great gifts. And so we praise your name for that. But we pray, Father, that many others would come and join and recognize in great joy, indeed, who you are and exalt your name, not just this day, but in all days ahead. And we look forward to the soon appearing of Jesus Christ, our Lord, whose name we pray. Amen. Amen. Let's take our hymn books and stand and turn to number 386. Brethren, we have met to worship and adore the Lord our God. We'll have, we'll have the women sing verse 2 by themselves and the men verse 3. 386.
4, and we'll, we'll read the responsive reading before we sing Christ has made the sure foundation. 354. Responsive reading. So then, you are no longer foreigners and strangers, but fellow citizens with the saints and members of God's household, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, with Christ Jesus himself as the cornerstone. Lord God said, Look, I have laid a stone in Zion, a tested stone, a precious cornerstone, a sure foundation. The one who believes will be unshakable. Jesus Christ is our sure foundation. The whole building is being fitted together in him and is growing into a holy sanctuary in the Lord. church. Today's uh, is going to be two split up verses. We're going to start in Acts uh, chapter 7 verses 1 through 16 and then we're going to go all the way back to Genesis chapter 50 verses 15 through 21. You'll see the correlation between these as we read them. Uh, you may want to keep uh, both verses in 
because we'll we're going to start like I said with Acts and then go all the way back to Genesis. Uh, so keep a finger in both of those pages. Let us read the word of God today, starting in Acts chapter 7, verse 1. And the high priest said, Are these things so? And Stephen said, Brothers and fathers, hear me. The God of glory appeared to our father Abraham when he was a, a, excuse me, a Mesopotamia. I can't say that. Excuse me. Thank you. Before he lived in Haran and said to him, Go out from your land and from your kindred and go into the land that I will show you. Then he went out from the land of the Chaldeans and lived in Haran. And after his father died, God removed him from there into the land in which you are now living. Yet he gave him no inheritance in it, not even a foot's length, but promised to give it to him as a possession and to his offspring after him, though he had no children. And God spoke to this effect, that his offspring would be sojourners in a land belonging to others, who would enslave them and afflict them for four hundred years. But I will judge the nation that they serve, said God, and after that they shall come out and worship me in this place. And he gave him the covenant of circumcision, And so Abraham became the father of Isaac and circumcised him on the eighth day. And Isaac became the father of Jacob and Jacob of the twelve patriarchs. And the patriarchs, jealous of Joseph, sold him into Egypt. But God was with him and rescued him out of all of his afflictions and gave him favor and wisdom before Pharaoh, king of Egypt, who made him ruler over Egypt and over all his household. Now there came a famine throughout all Egypt and Canaan, and great affliction with our fathers could find no food. But when Jacob heard that there was grain in Egypt, he sent out our fathers on their first visit. And on the second visit, Joseph made himself known to his brothers, and Joseph's family became known to Pharaoh. And Joseph sent and summoned Jacob, his father, and all his kindred, seventy-five persons in all. And Jacob went down into Egypt, and he died. He, our fathers, and they were carried back to Sheshem, and laid in the tomb that Abraham had brought for a sum of silver from the sons of Hammer in Sheshem. Now to Genesis chapter 50, verses 15 through 21. When Joseph's brothers saw that their father was dead, they said, It may be that Joseph will hate us and pay us back for all the evil that we did to him. So they sent a message to Joseph, saying, Your father gave this command before he died. Say to Joseph, Please forgive the transgressions of your brothers and their sin, because they did evil to you. And now, please forgive the transgressions of the servants of God of your father. Joseph wept when they spoke to him. His brothers also came and fell down before him and said, Behold, we are your servants. But Joseph said to them, Do not fear, for am I in the place of God? As for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good, 
to bring it about many people should be kept alive as they are today. So do not fear. I will provide you and your, for your little ones. Thus he comforted them and spoke kindly to them. Let us pray. Dear Heavenly Father, thank you for this day again that you give us to openly worship and praise you. We thank you for every wonderful day that you give us to do so, Lord. We thank you for the many freedoms that we have that was not always granted, Lord. We thank you that we aren't faced with hunger and with famine, Lord. We also thank you as you forgave, as Joseph forgave his brothers, we thank you that you forgive us for the many more sins we do against you. What we mean for evil, Lord, we are blessed that you turn it to good, Lord. We thank you every day as you forgive our transgressions. We pray that you would help us to glorify you in all we do, Lord, and to always seek your knowledge and wisdom and to be under your favor in all, all times, Lord. And bless this offering that we may use it to, to send your word to the many peoples who do not know you, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen. Be strong in the Lord. Let's take our hymn books again and stand and turn to number 559, and we'll sing more love to thee, O Christ. Ephesians 6, 24 says, Grace be with all who have undying love for our Lord Jesus Christ. 559.
save, save. For by grace you are saved through faith. Amen. And this is not from yourselves. It's a God's gift. Ephesians 2, 8. Amber in church, and I do pray that is your testimony of faith as well, that you are saved, saved by his grace. I wanted to do one more at least, and I think I'll finish on this probably and return to Hebrews chapter um, 7, I think is where we left off in our study through the book of Hebrews, but since the resurrection on what we call Easter Sunday, I wanted to continue and talk about the aftermath of the resurrection and point to the coming king, that is Jesus Christ. And so we're looking at the book of Acts, that's Luke's sequel to his gospel in chapter 1 and unpacking some of that. And today I wanted to focus really on the spirit of truth, the work of the Holy Spirit in the coming uh, of the King, Jesus Christ, and the establishment of his kingdom and his soon return. Jesus spent, as we noted the last couple of weeks, an additional 40 days after his resurrection. He did so in making 
appearances to his disciples, but only to his disciples, and from what we can tell in documented scripture, only on the Lord's Day. That's today, the day in which we worship, fundamentally changing the the worship of those Jews who worship God on Sabbath, which is Saturday. It's a new covenant. It's a new day in Christ, in Christ alone. And so we gather every Lord's Day because of the resurrection, because of the life that we have in Jesus Christ, our Lord. Jesus appears then only to his disciples. He doesn't go to his detractors because they have eyes to see the glory of Christ. He will no longer subject himself to the scorn of those who are in rebellion against him. His humility is over. There was a period of time in which he took on human flesh to walk in a humble state. He humbly walked into Jerusalem, riding on a donkey, coming in peace. He is all the time the sovereign Lord and King. But he humbles himself as a servant so that he indeed could suffer and take on the penalty to which we are due. But he's finished his mission. He has accomplished what he intended to do, and that is to atone for the sins of his people. So that indeed he would have servants who would be able to enter into his kingdom. Jesus Christ is in a glorified state. His humanity is it's risen from the dead. It's finished. He's taken on the full role of sovereign. The glory which he had and set aside in the sense that it was veiled in flesh is now fully restored and seen. He is Lord. He is King. He is Sovereign. And Jesus Christ calls all men, even today, everyone, to confess him as Lord. That's the message we preach. It's the message the apostles preached. Repent. The kingdom of God is at hand. Jesus Christ is Lord. Every knee will bow. Every knee will indeed confess, either in true repentance and receive an eternal blessing for which is only bestowed to them because of God's gracious gift, or they will otherwise bow in rebellion against him and receive the just recompense of their of their reward in eternal judgment. We mentioned that during Jesus' ministry, he called all men to repent. Repent, because the king has come. The kingdom is at hand. Jesus Christ is, is Lord. He is sovereign. And those who do confess him as Lord, through their submission to him as sovereign, 
then become subjects of this benevolent God. Subjects who will then enter into his kingdom, both now and forevermore. Those who enter in his kingdom are then, as subjects of his king, described as followers, or we might also use the word disciple. That's simply what it means. They're subject to the king, Christ. They follow the king, Christ, and they're subject to him. Before I get into Acts, if you want to turn there, you just can... I just, I'll highlight a couple verses for you in 2 Corinthians chapter 5. Here, Paul is reminding the church at Corinth in 2 Corinthians 5 that everyone is going to appear before this sovereign Lord. Verse 10 of chapter 5. We must all appear, he says, before the judgment seat of Christ that one may receive what is due for what he's done in his body, whether good or evil. That's what I'm saying. Everyone is subject to Jesus Christ, whether they recognize it or not. Everyone will indeed confess him as Lord in that sense. And knowing that, then Paul would say he, he understands where it's all going to end. That is, you will one day stand before Jesus Christ. Everyone, every leader, every, uh, I, everyone who has a different philosophy or different idea, all humanity will stand subject to Jesus Christ. And then knowing that, see, understanding that, Paul says in verse 11, Knowing the, the fear of the Lord. The fear, in a sense, it, it's a terror because of his perfect righteousness and holiness, something that we, we really never experienced. Anytime that angels, for example, were manifested in their perfect holiness to mankind, what was their response to? To fall over like dead man. Because it is foreign. It is so different. And God is perfectly righteous and holy. Compare it to light compared to darkness. The light will dispel the darkness. It is necessarily so. Knowing this, the fear of the Lord, that God will fulfill what he promises, and that which is unholy will not be able to stand before him, just as darkness will not be able to withstand light, and particularly the brightest light. Paul would say we persuade others. That's, that's what he did. He preached, and I hope if you know the sovereign Lord and a day in which every man will stand before him, persuade them by proclaiming Christ. He said, but what we are is known to God. I hope it is known also to your consciousness. God knows what's going on in the thoughts of human minds, even our own. Blessing is found, I'll just jump down to verse 17 of the same chapter, familiar passage. This is his gracious work then for those that will be able to stand before a holy God. He says, if anyone, verse 17 of chapter 5, I'm chapter 5, yeah, 2 Corinthians 5, 17, if anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. How does it come? Verse 18, all of this is from God, 
God who did what? Who through Christ reconciled us to himself and beyond that gives us the ministry of reconciliation. This is what we're called to do in the meantime. In other words, he put us into the kingdom in Christ. All of it is God's work. He made us a new creation in that sense. And the old is gone, new in Christ, reconciled to him, no longer a rebellion against him, no longer crying out, crucify him, but yes, Christ is Lord. And then he gives us, Paul would say, this ministry of reconciliation. And notice it isn't just Paul, it's us. He's preaching to Corinth, the church that had a lot of issues. But all that are in Christ, all that are in his kingdom, then all that know the fear of the Lord, all that know we must stand before him one day, then work to persuade others and have been given the, the entrance into this kingdom. But beyond that, we've been given a great ministry. What's your ministry? Preaching Christ, calling others to be reconciled to God. Verse 19, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself. What is this reconciliation? He explains not counting their trespasses against them. And then beyond that, entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. He didn't give this message by writing it somewhere in the sky. He's given it to those who have been reconciled to God through Christ We've been given this message, this ministry. To be able to tell people the greatest news anyone could ever receive. And that is, God will forgive you of your sin. Repent and believe. He says, then we're, we're ambassadors for Christ. How would you like to have that job. Isn't that a prominent job to be an ambassador for the country? It is. It's a great honor to be a spokesman on behalf of our country, for example. Those that are in this country, that is the kingdom of God, everyone is then called to be an ambassador for Christ. There can be no higher calling. You may have an occupation, all of us do, things that we have to do to make a living, to feed our families, to do the various work and responsibilities that we have, and all of those are good and all of those are honorable. But all of us that are in the kingdom also have a vocation. I like to distinguish between the two. Because all of us have a calling as an ambassador for Christ. You're in his kingdom, you're an ambassador. That, that, that brings you in and, and you become an ambassador, everyone. What does that look like? Well, God's making an appeal then through us. This is how God has determined then to proclaim the gospel. It is through those who would be ambassadors for Christ. Everyone that is a member of the kingdom, call others into the kingdom. And then we implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. Just a proclamation of it. For our sakes, he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that we, 
so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. That's the message we know in a nutshell. This is what Christ did. Jesus has given all his disciples this ministry to bring more subjects who will submit to Christ, confess him as Lord, to follow him, and become an ambassador for Christ. Not selective individuals who happen to be prominent or noticed, but everyone in a unique way in which he has gifted you in the world in which you occupy. He's given you a calling. It's the we that's mentioned there. We are ambassadors, and God makes his appeal through us, not just one guy hammering it out, but each and every one. Jesus gave us a commission. We're we're familiar with that, Matthew 28. He gave his disciples to make a a commission to make more disciples. And it would follow that those have the same commission as it continues on to make more disciples. It's the same concept here. I thought about this. I worked with a parenting class recently and it was reliving a lot of experiences for me. Because, you know, and as some express, you have a hard time getting your kids to follow you. (laughs) How are you going to get a rebel soul to submit to Christ and to follow him? How would you get those people that are adamantly opposed, that are in the kingdom of darkness, to walk in the kingdom of light? You talk about mission impossible, (laughs) This is it, really, and I think it's helpful to know that. But that's the mission to which we're called. We're called to make people follow Christ. Not forcibly. That really wouldn't make them. That would coerce them. We're talking about changing their heart's desire. That they would be a new creation in that sense. Have a new directive of life. How is this even going to, to, to happen? This is, this is quite a task that Christ has called his disciples to do. And those that would come, they have the same charge. How can we get anyone to believe, to follow Christ? The majority in their day crucified him. Christ goes to them privately, gives them this mission. But in Acts, we get a little more explanation, if you will, of how this impossible mission is made possible. I'll tip you off. It's through the power of the Holy Spirit. It's through this promise that Christ made to his people before he left. It is the Holy Spirit who is present right now. I don't have the possibility of convincing anybody. 
really, not internally, not changing their heart. This is the dynamic work of the Holy Spirit. And so we should take a moment to think and look at that, and I invite you to do so. Now we're finally back to the book of Acts. Acts chapter 1. We've read through it, but now I want you to read through it again, verses 1 through 11 in Acts. And this time, think through this power of the Holy Spirit, which was promised and who is now present in the course of this text. Acts chapter 1. Luke writes, In the first book of Theophilus, I dealt with all that Jesus began to do and teach. That's the Gospel of Luke. Until the day he was taken up. After he had given commands, notice, through the Holy Spirit to the apostles whom he had chosen. He presented himself alive to them after suffering by many proofs, appearing to them during the 40 days and speaking about the kingdom of God. And while staying with them, he ordered them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father which he said, you heard from me. For John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. So when they had come together, they asked him, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? And he said to them, it is not for you to know the times or seasons that the Father is fixed by his own authority. But... You will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. And you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. And when he had said these things, they were looking on. And he was lifted up, and a cloud took him out of their sight. And while they were gazing into the heaven, as he went, behold, two men stood by them in white robes and said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? This Jesus, who was taken up from you into heaven, will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. Let us pray. (coughs) Oh, Father, I do pray that you would give us an understanding of this incredible truth. Confidence in knowing of the power granted to us through the Holy Spirit promise that is made and the presence which exists even right now. I pray this in Christ's name. Amen. I want you to first note the power of the Holy Spirit. And it's subtly said here in verse 2. Notice here the recollection of Luke's gospel as he recalls that to Theophilus he reminds him of of this and it might be kind of subtle when you first see it that Jesus had been teaching his followers those that are in the kingdom and he gave them commands called them to obey him all that he had taught them and Gave the mission to do that with others. 
But notice how this teaching and this commands went forth. The text says it is through the Holy Spirit and directed toward the apostles who he had chosen. The Holy Spirit is instrumental in the teaching and the commands that are given. This is what Jesus does. It also, it in a way, provides us an exemplar on how we might be able to teach and command. One of the commands is simply this. Repent and believe. Those are command-type statements. There's much teaching that, okay, well, why and what's the significance of that? That's the concept of teaching, to unpack and unfold it. But, but much begins with this very command. And Jesus made those kinds of commands. He preached repentance and faith. But he did so instrumentally through the Holy Spirit, as our text records. And let me just won't walk through the whole book of Acts, but let me just give you some examples of how integral the Holy Spirit is with the ministry of Jesus Christ, in particular in his time of making disciples. If you want to see it for yourself, you can, or otherwise I'll just quote it for you. Some of these you'll probably remember. In Luke chapter 3, Luke chapter 3 and verse 22 Here it is at the inauguration of Jesus' ministry. Remember, he's being baptized by John the Baptist, kind of a transition between the Old and New Covenant. And Jesus doesn't have any sin to be baptized for, but to fulfill all righteousness and demonstrate it, he, he does show his submission in his humanity. And at that event, in verse 22, it notes, And the Holy Spirit descended on him in bodily form. It was like a dove. And then a voice from heaven. Here's the triune God. You have the Son, the Spirit, and the Father. You are my beloved Son, and with you I am well pleased. This idea of being (coughs) well pleased is that he is, confirms, he is without sin. There, there's no displeasure in him, is a way to think of it. There's no sin in him. This is my, my beloved one. But, but note here, at the very inauguration of his ministry, there's a unique divine anointing, if you will, of the Holy Spirit. Right at the beginning. Chapter 4. And verse 1, here Jesus is now engaging in his ministry. He's going to be tested by the devil. You might say tempted. Tested, tempted, that's fine. He passes all the tests, all the temptations. And how would he accomplish that in chapter 4? Well, it gives us the indication of it and why the anointing started from the beginning. Verse 1 Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, returned from the Jordan and was led then by the Spirit into the wilderness. Do you see the connection there? 
here, Jesus in his ministry. He is full of the Spirit. In that sense, the fullness of the Spirit, think of it as being controlled by, if you will. And then he said to be led by the Spirit for this very purpose, to prove his righteousness to us, not to him. Verse 14 in the same chapter, Jesus returns then in the power of the Spirit, it's capitalized, to Galilee. So now he goes back in the power of the Spirit. Anointed, filled or controlled, led, engaged in power, and down down to verse 18. Here in his proclamation of his ministry and making disciples, this verse 18 of Luke 4, the Spirit of the Lord is upon me. This is an Old Testament quotation because he has anointed me to do what? To proclaim good news to the poor. And he sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering the sight to the blind and to set liberty those who are oppressed. The Spirit of the Lord is, is upon me. Here is a unique dynamic, perhaps you haven't thought about, of the ministry of Jesus Christ and the connection and the instrumentality of the Holy Spirit to accomplish the work in all aspects. And we can go on, but all of his earthly ministry from the very beginning at that very anointing from heaven at his baptism to throughout his ministry and the actions were all engaged in and through the power of the Holy Spirit. I'll just give you one more verse back in Acts chapter 10. I'll just read it for you. Here, the proclamation of Jesus Christ and explaining him how God had anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and with power, and went about doing good and healing all who were oppressed by the devil, for God was with him. You see this presence of the Holy Spirit? You see the power that's mentioned here in, in, in engaging in this ministry, including performing the miracles and so forth. And that might be bring up a question here then perhaps you haven't even thought about that what would be this role of the holy spirit in the life and ministry of jesus christ isn't he the the god man having two natures human and divine a human nature without sin a divine nature but yet one person Technically, we call this the hypostatic union of Christ, and I don't want to get into the weeds with that, but just simply to think of it this way, Jesus is 100% man. By the way, it isn't necessary for mankind to be a sinner and to have sin. It, we were created without it. It is our fall that brought it on. It is the redemption that, through Christ that, that has taken it away and will glorify mankind who are in Christ to be without sin. But he has these 
two natures, and yet he's one being. So he's 100% man, and he's 100% God. And that's difficult for us to think about. Because there is any, any other correlation to that whatsoever. So it, sometimes we can refer to, just because of our way of thinking of Christ in the divine, and we can think of Christ in his humanity. Right? He, he, he is always, he's always present and living, and yet he was able to die in his humanity. But yet these, he's still one person. And never separate. And here's, I, I, I put a few notes down, and I might refer you to John Owen. I, I, won't, I don't have time to go through all of it. But he's a Puritan preacher, and if he was preaching, well, we'd have to give him three or four hours, and he could handle it too, by the way. In any case, he, in his third work that he wrote, he does explain this in quite detail. I'll try to summarize just a couple ideas here of what we're talking about uh, the, concerning the role of the Holy Spirit then in his ministry. One of the chief concerns is to protect the integrity of Christ's natures, that is, divine and human. And in doing so, there is a bold connection, if you will, in the act of the Son of God, the divine second person on the human nature of Christ, it was the decision to take into subsistence with himself in the incarnation. Christ performed his miracles through the power of the Holy Spirit, not immediately by his own divine nature. Does that make sense? And power. I mean, you might think of it was just Jesus' divine nature that was speaking and performing. But as we've already noted in Luke, that's not the case. He was anointed with the Holy Spirit. It was by the Holy Spirit that he was led. It is by the Holy Spirit that he was empowered to do these works in this ministry. And this may be difficult for us to understand that he didn't accomplish his ministry simply by virtue of his own divine nature. He does so through the power of the Holy Spirit. I can show you that from Scripture, and I'm going to skip through a whole section I had just because of time that would enumerate that and set it out, and you can search it for yourself in Owen's third work. But I would just say simply this, that the Holy Spirit was instrumental in his ministry. The ministry to which Jesus engaged in was what? Making disciples. He called men to himself. He taught them. He commanded them. And he did it through the power of the Holy Spirit. Now, I can't tell you precisely why that was necessary other than this is what God did and anything he does certainly would be necessary. It would certainly be good and accomplish what he wants to do. 
I would think one of the helpful things, though, in thinking through that, the engagement of the Holy Spirit in the ministry of Christ is simply this. That's how we'll accomplish our ministry, too. It is through the power of the Holy Spirit that this proclamation to which we're called to do, the commands which we give, to which they will be accomplished. It is an amazing work of the Holy Spirit, which is often sometimes referred to as the silent member of the Trinity, because he doesn't speak about himself. He speaks about the Son, and it is the Son, then, that brings us to the Father. If you want to see something of his work, I've referred to it before, but it's, it's one of my favorite passages, actually, in John chapter 3. I think Gordon's teaching on 3.16. I haven't been part of his class, but I'm looking forward to a future date in which I can. I hope you're a part of that. But John chapter 3, just prior to that famous passage of 3.16, where it says about God's gracing or loving the world, mercy and grace. In in verse 5, Jesus is encountering Nicodemus, who thinks he's in the kingdom. And Jesus is explaining, you're you're not. (laughs) You're not in the kingdom. You're in a religious order. You do respect God. And compared to other people, you're pretty moral. Actually, I would think he was very moral compared to other people. Very knowledgeable. But he had a problem. He wasn't, as Jesus says, born again. The word means the second time and above. He means both. That is a supernatural birth. And drop down to verse 5, if you're looking it up in John chapter 3. Jesus answered to Nicodemus and says this, Amen, amen. It's translated in your text, truly, truly. This, this, this means with great authority and, and verity, I say to you, Unless one is born of the water and of the Spirit. This is the dynamic work of the Holy Spirit. He cannot enter into the kingdom of God. And then he explains what this is. What what does it mean to be born of the Spirit? That which is born of flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Don't marvel that I say to you, you must be born again. And so so what does it look like to be born again? What is the Spirit's role and work in that? Here is this command. You must be born again. And how then does that accomplish anything? I'll tell you how it accomplishes it. It accomplishes it through the dynamic work of the Holy Spirit, which we don't do. He's quite capable of handling it. And he gives an explanation of it, which I think is a wonderful illustration in verse 8. The wind, think about it. The wind blows where it wishes. You hear its sound, but you don't know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. Here is a mysterious way, a way in which I don't think we have the capacity to completely understand, of course, how this is accomplished. But what we can understand is the change. We can see the evidence of it. 
You, you once had some rebel, rebellious person, someone who had no interest in obeying the commands of Christ, that now want to obey the commands of Christ, who had no interest in the teachings of Christ, who now can't get enough of them, who the significance of it is, is now made known. This is the work of the Holy Spirit. You can't see it. You can't grasp it. But you can see its results. You can see the evidence of it. That's the point. I think the point of all of this is for us to recognize the need of the divine enablement through the Holy Spirit. And Jesus demonstrates that in his earthly ministry, in making disciples, in accomplishing his mission. In his humanity, he relies on the power of the Holy Spirit. That very breath of life and the beginning that brings about the newness of life to continue on in sanctification as well. And beloved, I would argue that it is through the power of the Holy Spirit that we're going to be able to accomplish this impossible mission to which he has called us. Don't be frustrated because many will not hear. Our mission as an ambassador for Christ is simply to preach Christ and to proclaim him and trust the work and the power of the Holy Spirit to bring about conversion and a response. Back to Acts chapter 1. I think it's vital to understand the power of the Holy Spirit in our task and our mission and I'll just briefly touch on this, that this has been promised. It's been promised from the very beginning. Notice in verse 4, Jesus then orders his disciples to not get ahead of the power of the Holy Spirit, but to wait for that promise. Wait for the promise, he said, of the Father, which he said, you heard from me. In other words, Jesus had already told them that. An example is, you'll be baptized with water, but, but you will be baptized, or John, John the Baptist baptized with water in, in preparation. He said, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit many days from now. This concept of baptism, and particularly baptism in the Spirit, just, it confuses many. I think it might be helpful to understand the word baptism itself is a word which we uh, transliterate from the original language. We don't translate it. We, we make an English word that kind of sounds like the Greek word, baptizo, right, baptism. And that's fine. We do that with some technical terms. But as long as you understand the meaning of it, what the meaning is, and it can be used in different ways, think of being immersed um, engulfed, um, associated with. That, that's the idea, to be completely involved with, of baptism. And, and so, obviously, when we symbolically do it in water, it, you're, you're immersed. You, you're, you're completely engulfed in. Well, here's the, the promise that there, there will be this immersion, if you will, of the Holy Spirit that Christ has promised. 
Many mistake this idea of what this baptism might be, and there are, and they've gotten off rails with it and really missed the whole point of this promise that was made of sending the Holy Spirit. They somehow think that this baptism might be some secondary issue. They had to wait for it because this was a promise that Christ made to his first disciples to which is completely fulfilled in all disciples that follow. There's no second blessing, if you will, that we need to seek. The the first blessing, as it's often described, is the blessing of salvation. And with that comes this baptism of the Holy Spirit, this anointing. There are those who would teach today some sort of way in which they try to work up this manifestation of the Spirit as if you were saved and then you had to be then subsequently baptized and you would have some evidence in speaking gibberish, acting abnormal, crazy, and you know, you've seen the clips on YouTube. Unfortunately, that's all over the place. It's bizarre. I would say it's blasphemous. God is a God of order, not confusion and not chaos. He doesn't do magic tricks. He isn't a genie in a bottle. The Holy Spirit isn't something that we can control. It's something that God has promised to grant us power in making the message that we proclaim reach the intended recipients. And all this charade about this nonsense that goes on just, well, really, I would say it's a a word of the devil because it's a lie. And every lie comes from the Father. Of lies. Some people misunderstand this work of the Spirit. They might not go as far as to talk about some mystical baptism that they're seeking, but there are others that teach some sort of idea that you get saved and then maybe at some point in time you might have a second stage of um, personal conviction in which you then make Jesus Lord. You then fully submit to him. As a secondary state of spiritual growth. That's not Christianity. I understand why people say that. Because part of what they do is they expect people to respond to the message that they give, but they don't wait on the Holy Spirit to do his work in the heart. And that's hard. We pray over you people all the time. The little ones to the adults. I can't imagine anyone standing before Christ without the righteous clothes of Christ. It's a fearful thing to stand before God. And it's knowing that terror, truly knowing. I can't imagine anyone that would walk away from Christ and not confess him as Lord. And I suppose if I had the ability, I, I, would, I would sit there and put all kinds of pressure on you 
to do it. And there are some people who do preach that way. And, you know, I grew up in a church where, you know, the last 15 minutes of the service was just as I am, <laughs> over and over and over until enough people came forward. Some people might truly be converted through that process accidentally. But I don't want false converts. I don't want my converts. I want the converts of those that are convicted by the power of the Holy Spirit who then become a new creation in Christ and truly evidence it. Not because they're trying to please me or just please their parents or please someone else, but because they've been convicted by the Holy Spirit and they have a new life. They have a new disposition in life. I remember first coming to Christ. They didn't grow up in a Christian home and wasn't around anyone teaching the Bible or anything. But I do know one thing. There was all of a sudden an insatiable desire to know Christ, to read his word, to pray. Teaching along the way helped for sure as I grew, but there was always something there. I wanted Christ. This idea of baptism that they were going to wait for the Holy Spirit was fulfilled at Pentecost. And from that point, all believers have this power that Christ had promised. I said Christ promised it. I'll just show you this real quick, and then we'll move on, just so that you'll see where this is rooted in Christ in particular. And you can find that in John chapter 14, if you want to turn. John chapter 14. Jesus told his disciples that they were to wait for the promise of the Father. The Father makes a promise, and Jesus reveals it. He reveals the decrees of the Father. That's divine revelation to which we have it recorded in John chapter 14 and verse 15. I'll start with that. He says, if you love me, you'll keep my commandments. That's... That is uh, recognition of the work of the Holy Spirit in the life of the believer. He said, uh, someone who truly is regenerate, he says, I will ask the Father, verse 16, and he will give you another helper to be with you forever. Helper means another advocate, if you will. Christ was their advocate. And here he is before he's going to be crucified, before he leaves them. And he says, I'm going to be with you. I'm not going to leave you as orphans. I'm going to give you another of the same essence, that is God, with you, the helper. And he's going to be with you how long? Forever. When, when this promise is fulfilled, this is what I'm getting at. It, this is not something that to those that are his disciples, this is now a unique relationship that those in Christ have with God, that they will, be, they will have this advocate with them, this promise, and they'll have this forever. This is for all who would follow Christ. And who is that? Who is that? Verse 17, he's described as the spirit of truth. Notice here, whom the world cannot receive. You wonder why people don't get it? Truth stares them in the face, and they don't get it. 
because this is not received through just natural observations. It isn't received from the flesh. This is a dynamic work of the Holy Spirit. He says they, never see, they, they neither see him nor know him be, because you must be regenerate to be able to, to know the truth, to see the truth. But you know him, and he dwells with you, and he will be in you. The Spirit of truth, God, with them, Jesus standing before them, and he will send the Holy Spirit another of the same kind. And one of my favorite phrases here is in verse 18, I will not leave you as orphans, I will then come to you. This is the returning king. He won't leave them orphans because he'll be with them. <laughs> I know what it feels like to be abandoned. It's not good. And many, many others do. It's awful. Christ is not going to abandon his disciples when he leaves. He will be with them in the spirit of truth. He said, yet, yet a little while the world will see you no more, but you will see me. Because I live, you will also live. And that day you will know that I am in the Father and you in me and I in you. Whoever has my commandments and keep them, it is he who loves me. And he who loves me will be loved by my Father, and I will love him and manifest myself to him. This is all the work of Christ, mediated through the instrumentality of the Holy Spirit. He promises that he will send the Holy Spirit to uniquely dwell with the disciples from that day forth and forever. Thus fulfilling his promise at the end of his commission that he gave to the disciples you remember and i am with you to the end of the age if you ever feel alone or abandoned or whatever it might be if you're in christ you're never alone what's this helper going to do verse 26 the holy spirit whom the father will send in my name he will teach you all things He'll bring to remembrance all that I have said to you. It's this dynamic work in the heart of the believer. The, the teaching part is the, uh, I always think of it as the, the, uh, the significance of the substance. Right? It's, it's one thing to read a text of scripture. It's another thing to realize what it actually means. And whatever you realize at the moment in time, there's more. It would be like peeling an onion, but to infinity. There's layer after layer. This is why we can stand up here each week, and I know great preachers have done this. They cannot exhaust what's here. If all we did was take John 3.16, you understand, we, I could preach until I die and never get to the end of it. Now, you might get tired of me reading the same verse every week, but, but we won't get to the end of it. And he says he will give peace, true peace to the believer. Not as the world gives you, because they just make these little compacts of peace until, well, they get annoyed and <laughs> then peace is over. And Christ doesn't get annoyed. 
Every believer has this power. Every believer has this promise. And this promise is his presence. Back in verse 8 of Acts chapter 1. He says, you're going to receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you. This is the presence of the Holy Spirit in the life of the believer. And what will this presence then enable us to do? Verse 8, you will then be my witnesses in Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. Most of you probably already know about this geographically, Jerusalem. Think of it as a city, Judea, maybe the the country or the county. Samaria, another land, a different people, but closely uh, related in some respects where you can communicate, but different culture. And then the end of the earth, you get that too. So it's like dropping a pebble in a flat water, like a pool or something, and then you see these circles floating out. That, that's the imagery given here. That they would be my witnesses at home and abroad and everywhere in between. That this great mission that they would accomplish, really impossible mission, it would be made possible through the power and promise of the Holy Spirit, but not something that you, you get and you leave, but something that goes with you, something that's always with you. You said whatever circumstance you might be in, you don't know what God is doing, how people are observing the love of God in Christ, instrumentality that, that you're engaging in, in simple ways you, you may never know. I've heard many stories about people that have proclaimed Christ to others and time had passed and they never knew the result of it. And maybe they even died. But God's word will not return void. It will accomplish what he purposes. And so here they're engaging in this witnessing as they're called to do, and they do so throughout all the ends of the earth. Preaching Christ for the forgiveness of sins to all people, to every person, to every nation, everyone and everywhere, because there is only one singular hope in the world. One, that's it. It's Jesus Christ. That's it. There is no other help. There is no other hope. There is no other source than him. And beloved, we're given this impossible ministry to go forth and just proclaim the singular hope. But recognize that you're not having to do it alone. His presence is certainly with you. And this can be great consolation. This can be the great peace that he gives, and even in the midst of non-peace, because 
peace we often think of maybe as the absence of um, turmoil, if you will. But you know you can have peace even in the midst of turmoil. Remember some of the disciples of the book of Acts, as we'll read, they're, they're in prison and they're singing. <laughs> they're not happy to be in prison. And I imagine it hurt a lot more then than it would even now. But they had an internal peace, a trust in God in all circumstances, trusting that even in that environment they would be able to do what? Proclaim the gospel. And many did come to faith. But it would be hardships, and many of these disciples would be scattered abroad. James opens his letter that way to try to comfort. James, the pastor in Jerusalem, talks about those that were scattered abroad. Scattered abroad not because of their own choices, but because of the persecution that fell on the early Christians. I'll read you one passage, and I'll, I'll finish with this just because I want you to hear it. Here's Paul in his early ministry, empowered through the Holy Spirit, preaching the gospel with the presence of the Holy Spirit, accompanying his mission and his ministry. I'll read it for you. We'll get to it in our reading through the book of Acts, but I'll just give you a preview here. Acts 14, verse 19. Jews came from Antioch and Iconium, and having persuaded the crowds, they stoned Paul. Stoning meant they took a rock and threw it at him and kept on throwing rocks until it was just a big pile of rocks. I imagine that hurt pretty bad. And they dragged him out of the city, supposing that he was dead. But when the disciples gathered about him, he rose up and entered in the city. And on the next day, he went to Barnabas to Derby. Preaching can be really hard. <laughs> it can kill you. And he knew it. When they preached the gospel to that city, he had made many disciples. <laughs> when they returned to Lystra and to Iconium and Antioch, they, they strengthened the souls of the disciples and encouraged them to continue in the faith, saying this, that through many tribulations we must enter into the kingdom of God. That's what it's all about. It's the kingdom of God. Doesn't mean it's going to be easy. It is through many tribulations because those that would you would give the message to, most of them do not want to hear it. Go try it sometime. It's not only going to fall on deaf ears, but it may fall on violent. That was their circumstance. In fact, we come to know this word martyr. martyr. It's a Greek word for witness. It became a word that ended up describing someone who declares a good and factual report, of course, but in the Christian context, they get killed for it. And from church history, we... We know that is true. When the light of truth is exposed on the darkness, those that are in darkness hate it and respond to it oftentimes in great violence. They'll reject it. The church is full 
of that, particularly these disciples. Matthew, we're told, was run through by a sword in Ethiopia. Mark was dragged to his death in the streets of Alexandria. Luke was hanged on an olive tree in Greece. John, remember him, he saved martyrdom, but he was boiled in oil, somehow escaped, and then vanished to the Isle of Patmos. Christ had something for him to write. Peter was crucified upside down in Rome. There's two James, the greater and the less. The greater was beheaded at Jerusalem. The less was thrown off a pinnacle of the temple and then stoned. Bartholomew was flayed alive. Andrew was bound to a cross, and he continued to preach the gospel until his last breath. Thomas was run through a lance in the East Indies. Jude was shot to death with arrows. Matthias was stoned and then beheaded. Barnabas of the Gentiles, if you remember, was stoned to death. Paul was beheaded by Nero. The preacher of Hebrews says some were tortured, tortured, refusing to accept release so that they might rise again to a better life. Others suffered mocking and flogging and even chains and imprisonment. They were stoned. They were sawn in two. They were killed with a sword. They went about in skins of sheep and goat, destitute, afflicted, mistreated, of whom the world was not worthy. Wandering about in deserts and mountains and in dens and caves of the earth, and all of these, though commended through their faith, didn't receive what was promised since God had provided something better for us, that apart from us they should not be made perfect. Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witness, let us also lay aside every weight and the sin which clings so closely. Let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Let us pray. Oh, Father, we're thankful for the promise of the Holy Spirit, the power that has been granted not to engage in those things that would exalt us, but exalt Christ. I pray we would trust indeed in that and be comforted by your presence. I pray this in Christ's name. Amen. I'm going to give you a moment to respond to Christ in any way he has spoken to you. If you need to repent and believe, do so now. If you um, have something to confess or confirm, do that privately where you're at. I'll give you a moment now.
Oh, Father, I do pray that you would grant to us a steadfast faith. May we be courageous in you and at peace because we trust and rely on you. I do pray that you would accomplish what you have called us to do. May we be faithful servants and enjoy the presence which you have granted to us. I pray this in Christ's name. Amen. So I'll stand and turn to 551 in our hymnals. 551. All that thrills my soul is Jesus. dismissed gracious father we just pray for each and every one here lord that they may be filled with the knowledge of his will and all spiritual wisdom and understanding so as to walk in a manner worthy of the lord fully pleasing to him bearing fruit in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of god being strengthened with all power according to his glorious might for all endurance and patience with joy, giving thanks to the Father, who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved Son, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. Father, we do now continue in prayer that each and every one of us, uh, as we go to our fellowship time, uh, that we uh, are going to have at the picnic that uh, you would bless each and every one in their fellowship and bless the food that's, that uh, we're about to partake of to our bodies. We ask it now in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.